Hi y'all. So as we are getting ready to start deep diving into President Nelson's general conference discourses, the thought keeps coming back to me to relate this chapter from Anthony Sweat's book called Seekers Wanted. This is chapter four and it is titled Interpreting Scripture. Please consider this recording of this chapter as if I am hosting a, a Zoom call with all of you present to listen to some of these concepts made here. It is in no wise an effort to um, uh, cause you not to go out and, and buy this book because it's an excellent resource book. I highly recommend going in and purchasing a copy. There may even be an audiobook version somewhere, maybe on the Deseret Bookshelf. Um, but yes, I, I believe that this is crucial for us uh, the concepts laid in this chapter before we begin our study of President Nelson's words. So here we go, chapter 4, Interpreting Scripture. Words have power. Recorded words have staying power. The spoken word may momentarily inspire. The written word is a constant heavenly, heavenly messenger resurrecting itself daily in black and white text each time you reopen the page. Although Nephi lamented that he didn't write as powerfully as he spoke, 2 Nephi 33.1. Paradoxically, it is written... No, it is his written words that have carried the spirit into the hearts of millions. Alma wished he were an angel and could ha lift his voice as a sound of a trump to the ends of the earth, yet his wish was fulfilled not through his speaking, but through his writing. His voice is heard in Australia, Japan, and remote corners of the Amazon, like an angel gliding across the globe, thundering repentance through printed text. See Alma 29, 1-2. Moroni seemed to think he was a great speaker and a poor writer. See Ether 12, 23. But it is the book he shepherded that has brought millions to the Lamb of God. Books cross oceans, traverse mountains, and sit patiently on shelves for hundreds of years, waiting like hidden pearls of great price for their pages to be read and wisdom revealed. The most sacred writings we call scripture, the written mind, will, and voice of the Lord that leads us to salvation. Of all recorded text, scriptures contain the most truth and the most power. They are like modern-day Liahona, revealing a new God's voice each time we pick them up. Scriptures are your own personal Urim and Thummim. If you peer into them with strong enough faith, you, they will show you God, open his mysteries, and launch you into personal revelations about heaven. Although scriptures carry such power, paradoxically, the extract, no, to extract the maximum for their revelatory potency, we need to acknowledge their weakness. Scripture isn't perfect. It can contain errors and omissions. It can be biased by culture and tainted by time. Like a romantic filled with uh, like a romantic filled with indescribable love, scripture is sometimes constrained by human language, limited expressions seeking the right words to communicate the ineffable. The written word of God, like mankind in general, must be viewed as a weak vessel before it can be made strong by Jesus' grace. Although we must study scripture, search it, and liken it, one of the most essential skills for seekers to learn is how to properly view it and then interpret it. When something is seen correctly, it can be more powerfully understood, studied, and searched, and applied. The goal of this chapter is to first help seekers properly view scripture, and then to provide 
a four-step approach to interpreting the word of God so its full spiritual power to reveal truth can be more fully unlocked in our lives. The Weakness of Language All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Paul reminded Timothy, so that man may be perfect. Although scripture can lead us to be perfect, the language of scripture can be far from it. Language strives, but cannot always give adequate expression to human experience, feeling, and ideas. Anyone who speaks two languages knows that dialects are inherently limiting, and as there are some phrases in one language that communicate certain ideas better than in another. From my mission, I learned the Spanish word sobremesa. In eight letters and one word, it communicates the intimate ex- Experience of a discussion over the dinner table after the meal is eaten when you sit back and talk for a while. See, it took me two dozen words to summarize what is understood in one Spanish word, of which there is no English equivalent. All languages have their robust expressions to communicate ideas and their feeble ones. If languages sometimes struggle to express human experience, they struggle even more to express the divine. The first time Joseph Smith wrote about the first vision, he said he saw a pillar of fire, which is crossed out for light. He couldn't find the right word to describe what he explained, fire or light, and would spend the rest of his life seeking appropriate words to express the heavenly. In a November 1832 friend to his friend William W. Phelps, Joseph concluded with a prayer for the first time when the two of them should gaze upon the eternal wisdom engraven upon the heavens and then prayed, O Lord God, deliver us in thy due time from the little narrow prison, almost as if it were total darkness of pen, paper, pen, and ink, and a crooked, broken, scattered of imperfect language. Perhaps that is why the prophet developed a fascination with the Adamic language, which he called a pure language, in which ideas can be perfectly communicated. Joseph wanted Adam's language because he felt confined by his own. Thus, when the prophet Joseph recorded revelations, he wasn't writing God's language, but the English words that tried to express what God had given him. As scholar Stephen Harper taught, records of such revelations are not the revelations themselves. They are but representations captured in our language so that we might come to understand them if we consider the words carefully and solemnly, in light of experience and the Holy Spirit. We make no claim that any scripture is inerrant or infallible. Records of such revelations are not revelations themselves. That is a key concept to grasp about viewing and interpreting scripture. The revelations were not God's dictation, dialect, or native language, historian Richard Bushman has written. They were couched in language suitable to Joseph's understanding. Even God acknowledged that the written revelations that came to Joseph were not in perfect final form. In the preface of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord reminds the reader, The commandments, revelations, were given unto my servants in their weakness, after the manner of their language, that they might come to understanding. DNC 1.24 Joseph Smith and his associates therefore consisted, or considered the language that expressed God's revelations as malleable, changeable, and editable. They weren't written with an iron pen. For example, DNC 20.40 originally said that priesthood holders are to administer the flesh and blood of Christ according to the scriptures. It was later amended in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants to read that they are to administer bread and wine, the emblems of the flesh and blood of Christ, which is how it stands today. Why the change? Perhaps the clarity 
perhaps to clarify the intent of the revelation and avoid misinterpretation of the original statement, such as suggesting an unintended doctrine of transubstantiation. If you go to the Joseph Smith Papers website and look for the earliest written versions of the revelations, as chapter 3 taught you how to do, you will see numerous strikethroughs, carrot insertions, and amendments. Much of the text is unchanged, but the points that are point is that there are changes. Our dialect is not God's. The words used in scripture are but mortal expressions trying to convey heavenly concepts clearly, which is not always possible or perfect in limited human language, with or without words like sobremesa. The weakness of the Bible and Book of Mormon. To the chagrin of many Christians who believe in the infallibility of the Bible, members of the restored church often point out biblical errors and problems. We recite our article of faith that the Bible is the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. In the Book of Mormon, we learn that there have been many there have been yeah, many plain and precious things taken away from the Bible, causing people to stumble over the gospel. We know, for example, that God doesn't harden people's hearts, as Exodus twenty ten twenty says. The Lord won't cause evil in cities, as Amos three six declares. We don't leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ to be perfected, as Hebrews 6 1 suggests. The Bible has personal opinions, such as Paul's counsel in 1 Corinthians 7 14 about whom to marry. Cross reference that with DNC 74 5. And cultural constructions, such as women having long hair and men having short hair. See 1 Corinthians 11 14 15. While yet believing in the Bible's divinity, we recognize that it has its deficiencies. Lest we get high-minded and heavy-handed towards the Bible's imperfections, we must remember that all scripture has limitations. When we say that the Bible has issues, the conservative Christians shout back blasphemy. When we say the Book of Mormon also has shortcomings, the conservative Latter-day Saints shouts back with equal vigor, heresy. The very title page of the Book of Mormon, however, undercuts its infallibility premise, forewarning, If there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. Wherefore, condemn not the things of God. When Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was the most correct book of any on earth, he wasn't talking syntax, grammar, adverbs, or expression. By most correct, he likely meant that its precepts articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ in clarity and lead a reader to get nearer to God, not that there weren't some limitations to the express content. While largely the same as the original, the Book of Mormon text has nevertheless had hundreds of words amended and thousands of grammatical changes made over the years of its subsequent printings. We must also recognize the Book of Mormon authors, while prophets, were human. They, like biblical writers, were affected by culture, opinion, perspective, and memory. The principal writers of the Book of Mormon made conscious decisions, and likely subconscious ones, about what to include and not include in their record. Grant Hardy, author of Understanding the Book of Mormon, has written insightfully on the construction of the Book of Mormon. He says, Book of Mormon authors like Nephi, Mormon, and Moroni reveal their identities from the beginning and exercise strict control over their material. They write from limited human perspectives, that is, they give us their personal view of what happened and why it's important. Though for those within the faith, the prophetic authority of these men makes them uniquely qualified to render such judgments. They do not hesitate to address readers directly to explain their intentions, their writing processes, their editorial decisions, and their emotional responses to the events they recount. They even admit the possibility of human error. 
Translating Scripture. At this point, you may be wondering why I've spent the previous pages pointing out some of the weaknesses of Scripture. It's not to undermine faith in the written Word of God. Just the opposite. It is to get us into the Word of God so that we can connect to the power it contains. If we don't understand that Scripture can be limited by language, influenced by perspective, inserted with opinion, and constructed through human weakness, we will not understand the need to translate Scripture by the power and inspiration of the Spirit. When you read the word translate, you may have in mind the process of rendering from one language to another, from Greek to French, or English to Spanish. When I say translate, however, I have something else in mind. To understand, read the following text message sent at 7.41pm. Hey, what are you doing right now? This text message may seem straightforward enough, yet it isn't. It needs to be translated. If this is from a young man who is interested in dating a girl, Hey, what are you doing right now at 7.41 p.m. means, Hey, if you're up for it, I would like to go somewhere with you. If the girl is inter interested and translates the text correctly, she will likely message back something like, Nothing, why? Likely, she actually is in the middle of something, but interpreting the message correctly, she wants to convey that she is interested in spending time with him and will drop whatever she's doing. Nothing says something, but must be able to translate intent. Yes, even English to English. We do the same with scripture. Looking at the following verse from Jesus' Bread of Life sermon and ask yourself what it means. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. John 6:54. Notice how quickly you interpreted the intended meaning of the verse. If I asked what Jesus meant, you probably would say something about the need to take the sacrament. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't directly say a word about the sacrament. That is what it implies. It is likely that you immediately grasped that message, perhaps unconsciously. You translated. Look at the following sentence to see how different meanings can be inferred from it. I never said she stole my money. It is written in English, but does it but just what does it mean? It has many possible interpretations depending on the emphasis you give different words, as shown in italics below. I never said she stole my money suggests that I never said it, but someone else did. I never said she stole my money suggests I never said that at all. I never said she stole my money suggests that I implied it, but I didn't directly say it. I never said she stole my money, suggests that I didn't say that this girl stole it, but some other girl did. I never said she stole my money, suggests that I never said she stole my money, but maybe she borrowed it. I never said she stole my money, suggests that she stole someone else's money, not mine. I never said she stole my money, suggests that she stole something else, but not my money. As illustrated above, emphasis changes meaning, sometimes a lot. The same is true in translating scripture. The following in Alma's summary of why the children of Israel, when bitten by poisonous serpents in the wilderness, would not look to Moses holding the brazen serpent on a pole to now be healed. Now the reason they would not look is because they did not believe it would heal them. The emphasis changes the doctrinal meaning. If you say, now the reason they would not look is because they did not believe it would heal them, that is, a faith issue. They didn't believe or trust it. If you emphasize it this way, now the reason they would not look upon look is because they did not believe it would heal them. It now becomes a hope issue. They believed it would work for others, but not for them personally. Which reading is right? I can't say. Language is limited. It is up to correct interpretation by the illumination of the Spirit. 
When Joseph Smith translated the Bible in the summer of 1830 to the summer of 1833, this is what he was doing. There is no historical documentation that supports that Joseph Smith sat down with a Greek or Latin or Hebrew Bible at that time and tried to retrofit the Bible back into its original form. It was an English-to-English revelatory translation. The 1828 Webster's Dictionary defines translation as the act of turning into another language, but also interpretation. Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible restored lost doctrines, clarified existing passages, corrected errors, and added information to clarify the intent and meaning of the text. It was a revelatory experience to tap into the voice and mind of the original writer of the text's possible interpretation and application for seekers in our day. Thus, although Joseph technically finished the Bible translation, calling it finished in the summer of 1833, if we understand what is meant by translation, he could never finish translating the Bible. The Joseph Smith translation, though extensive, was not exhaustive, because Joseph Smith's biblical translation implies a revelatory interpretation. It is possible that additional changes would have been made by Joseph Smith if he had lived longer, and new needs arose for Joseph to render plainer translation for the saints. Brigham Young once said Joseph Smith could translate the Bible forty thousand different ways. Forty thousand JSTs, yes, and that's where you and I enter in. Personally interpreting scripture. The Joseph Smith translation of the Bible displays a pattern to follow for personal scriptural study interpretation. Once we begin to understand that scripture is from God but limited by mortal constraints, we begin to see the necessity of reaching to heaven to receive grace, to understand its potential truths and express them clearly. We see the task of scripture study in fresh light. Our job is to get in tune with the same spirit that revealed the concept Properly to improperly interpret the concept in the language and conditions in which it was written, and then, by inspiration, render the verse in a way we understand. The following graphic shows this process. Yeah, I'll just post that in the show notes. Using Joseph Smith Bible translation as a model, scholar Adam Miller wrote insightfully on this process of translating or interpreting scripture ourselves. Joseph produced, as God required, the first public translations of the scriptures we now share. But that work, open-ended all along, is unfinished. Now the task is ours. When you read the scriptures, don't just lay your eyes like stones upon the pages. Roll up your sleeves and translate them again. With a power in hand, finish what Joseph started. You and I must translate these books again. Word by word, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. God wants the whole thing translated once more, and this time he wants it translated into your native tongue, inflected by your native concerns and written in your native flesh. To be a Mormon is to do once more, on your own, small scale, and the same kind of work that Joseph did. Some may read that statement and hesitate, saying that translating scripture is for prophets, not regular people. Don't shy away from your opportunities or your capabilities to let God give you words. Scriptures are lying there at your feet like a leohona waiting for you to pick them up and decipher through faith the words written therein. Four Keys to understand Interpreting Scripture To personally interpret scripture, I suggest a four-step process. 1. Read mindfully. 2. Listen reverently. 3. Restate personally. and 4. Substantiate externally. This process flows naturally as we seek God's grace to translate scriptural text in its weakness and in ours.
We read the text with care. As we read, we try to listen to the Holy Ghost's whisperings to reveal truth through the words. We then rewrite the text in our own language and understanding by inspiration. Then we check our interpretation with other sources to help substantiate our rendering of scriptural truths. Read mindfully. Reading the text is somewhat self-evident if we are to interpret or translate it. The key here is to mindfully read, however, or to read with concentrated focus, seeking understanding. Digital technology has created an increase in those who don't read the printed copies of scripture. They either listen to audio versions of them or view them digitally on a screen. While it's in vogue to embrace all things tech, and digital text has its advantages, mainly accessibility, portability, searchability, and linkability, research suggests that reading from printed pages is superior in many ways to digital reading, such as increased comprehension, concentration, and time spent in the text. This isn't a comprehensive review of the literature, but I'm trying to make a point. Don't just do what is convenient or in vogue. Do what allows you to mindfully read the words. Read when you can be relatively uninterrupted by others. Read where it's quiet. Don't try to multitask, or a word that in reality means not paying atten full attention to anything. For mindful study, read the text more slowly, as Jeffrey R. Holland has pled. To slow down, perhaps read for a set amount of time, rather than trying to check off a certain number of chapters. Pay closer attention to what is written and how it is expressed, stopping to ask questions and consider implications of words, phrases, and sentences. Reading mindfully also means you pay attention to seemingly insignificant things like punctuation. Yes, seemingly insignificant things like punctuation. See how that reads? I'll put that in the show notes because I, I don't know how to read that aloud. Most scri scriptural punctuation has been added over time. Who is to say that the commas, hyphens, or semicolons are in the right place or should be there at all? They may change how words and phrases are expressed. Seekers who want to interpret scripture must read in concentrated study, as President Howard W. Hunter once said, and not just with convenience for mere casual reading. Listen reverently. As we read mindfully, we simultaneously seek to listen to the Spirit. This is key because holy men of God who wrote scripture spake as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. 2 Peter 1.20 While scriptural texts can be limited due to the constraints of language, interpretation of scriptural texts can come directly from the Spirit to our spirit, uh, despite confusing sentence structure or archaic grammatical expressions. Thus, to properly interpret scripture, we must get into a scriptural essence. And the only way to do that is to get in tune and hear the voice of the same spirit that revealed the scripture concepts in the first place. The things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God, said Paul directly. Or as educator Joseph Fielding McConkie once wrote, it takes the spirit of revelation to understand revelation. Like Nephi, to those who mindfully read and diligently seek, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost. Without the Spirit, we do err, not knowing the Scriptures, as Jesus accused the Sadducees. With the Spirit of truth, we will understand and be edified as we read the words of truth. As you read the Holy Scriptures carefully, pay attention to the flashes of insight and ideas to your mind, the messages that press upon you. Begin your study with a prayer that the Holy Ghost will speak to your mind and heart and give you understanding. As you listen reverently, messages will come to you personally. Restate personally. 
As you read the written word of God mindfully and listen reverently to the Spirit, the next step is to write down what you are understanding in your own words. This is perhaps the single greatest exercise I can encourage for seekers to deepen scripture study. I suggest two approaches, summarize and paraphrase. Summarize. To summarize means to condense the content down to its essence. For example, you may read DNC 89 about the word of wisdom. I summarized that section in this way. God gave Joseph Smith a revelation for the benefit of all the saints to help them avoid evil. He teaches us to avoid substances common in society such as tobacco and alcohol, to limit meat consumption, and to intake other substances such as fruits and grains wisely and gratefully. He promises his saints both physical and spiritual blessings for adhering to the disciplined consumption code. This summer's summary digested a revelation of 580 words into 76 words of its main ideas. Summarizing helps clarify understanding and discern patterns and purpose. It helps focus central ideas and express the core concepts of spiritual blocks. As educator Robert Marzano said, At its core, comprehension, comprehension is based on summarizing, restating content in a succinct manner that highlights the most crucial information. Read the text carefully, yourself, listen to the spirit, and then summarize verses and scriptural chunks in your own groupings and expressions. Make personal summaries of verses in a notebook or in the margins of the scripture. There are several journaling editions of the scriptures available to help people study and learn from the scriptures in this way. Paraphrase. Paraphrasing is a powerful way to translate or interpret scriptural text to enhance your study. Paraphrasing is restating the text in your own words without losing essential ideas or details. You aren't condensing, you are rephrasing. Let me illustrate with a scriptural example from John 8:12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What is this text saying? How could you rephrase it in your own words and retain its essence and details? Here is how I did in my scripture study journal. Then Jesus said, I am the source of truth in the world. Whoever does what I say won't walk around confused about what is right or wrong, or what they should or shouldn't do, but they will have the truth to guide them into joy and eternal life. Isn't that fun? It was fun for me to do that rendering. It caused me to engage with the text, compare words, look at punctuation, consider synonyms and verbs, ponder the intent, and examine cross-references. For example, what did Jesus mean by light in this verse? I interpreted it as truth. Paraphrasing is something people of all ages can and should do. Recently, our family scripture study had been lacking. I had, it had become rote and somewhat boring, a checklist. Neither my teenagers nor my little kids were thinking or engaging with the text. Thus, my wife and I decided to get journals and have our children render scripture in their own language. We take a set block, usually 10 to 15 verses, and we summarize the scripture block or paraphrase one or two verses. We all read the verses silently on our own. My wife and I help our younger kids grasp the harder English words. Then everyone writes for a few minutes and we share which verse or verses we picked and how we expressed it. It has transformed our family scripture study overnight and it has caused our children to personally engage with and try to decipher the message of the inspired text. Hear the original of John 2, 19-20 and next to it, my 11-year-old's daughter's paraphrase. I'll take a picture of that and post it in the show notes. 
So to practice, consider how you would interpret one of the following passages. Take a minute and read the verse in context. Listen to the Spirit's insights and then paraphrase them in your own language and understanding. Here are some general summary tips for effective scriptural paraphrasing. Use your own words and phrases. Find synonyms to replace keywords. Reorder the text sequence in ways that make sense to you. Write in the tense of the text, including first person. Do not retreat into third person. Bring all your prior knowledge and insights to bear on the text. Read between the lines for tone, omissions, and veiled meanings, and express it explicitly. You may hesitate to personally paraphrase because of the sacredness of the text or your own perceived weakness. Don't. Remember, records of revelations are not the revelations themselves. They are human expressions of heavenly concepts in mortal language. Don't worry if you aren't good at it. The translation process will teach and connect you to heaven through rereading the text. That is what's good. On the other hand, don't err on the other side thinking that your translation is the only way to render a verse. Don't assume your interpretation is so correct that everyone should hear and agree with it, and that those who don't are ignorant or apostate or both. Lest any be deluded, when we paraphrase scripture in our own words to help us understand, we are not declaring our paraphrase to be the standard for any others. Only the prophets have authority to create and interpret scripture for the church. As President Dallin H. Oaks once taught, there are two types of scriptural interpretation, public and private. An open canon, he taught, includes private revelations to individual seekers of the meanings of the existing scriptures, but public revelations on the meaning of canonized scriptures come through those we sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators. A major question you may ask as you experiment with both written summary and paraphrase is whether your scriptural ideas are on point. Biblical professor Daniel Wallace said that each Christian has the right to his own interpretation of scripture, but that each also has the responsibility to get it right. To try to get our translations in harmony with truth, we should substantiate our scriptural renderings with external sources. Substantiate externally. To substantiate externally means to check our scriptural paraphrases and translations against other authoritative sources dealing with the same content. I suggest the following four. Other scriptures, other biblical translations, modern prophets, and historical context. Other scriptures. One of the best ways to render a verse is to see what other scriptures say about that verse. Let scripture interpret scripture, Elder B.H. Robert once said. Many Old Testament teachings are interpreted in the New Testament, Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants. Read how Jesus renders Old Testament passages in the New Testament. Listen to how Nephi interprets Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, or how Joseph Smith does in the Doctrine and Covenants. Numerous New Testament teachings and parables are given modern interpretation in the Doctrine and Covenants, such as the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the ten virgins. Look for what scriptural scholars call intextuality. The similar usage of phrases from one author incorporated by another. The Book of Mormon is loaded with biblical intextuality. The Doctrine and Covenants also. The more you study scripture carefully, the more you begin to realize, uh, recognize expressions being repeated by scriptural writers. Intertextuality can shed new light on interpretations of the scriptural phrase and uncover potential meanings. Other Biblical Translations As Latter-day Saints, we need to collectively warm up to other translations of the Bible. If you don't believe me, just ask if you felt your King James fist fly up when reading that previous sentence. The King James Version is currently the English standard for the restored church, perhaps because of its in 
intertextual language of Restoration Scripture. That said, much is to be gained from reading other faithful biblical translations. Brigham Young once suggested that if someone understood Greek and Hebrew, that person was under obligation to render a better translation of the Bible if he or she saw shortcomings in the King James Version. At times, King James expressions can be awkward, generally when its translators chose not to use Tyndale's original phraseology. For example, look at Matthew 6, 34, and about why Jesus said we should not take, that we should take no thought of tomorrow. King James, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. The Tyndale version states, the day present hath ever enough of his own trouble. To me, Tyndale's translation offers more clarity than the King James Version. Aside from King James, the two other most popular English Bibles are the New International Version, NIV, and the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. There are many others, with it, each with its strengths and weaknesses. See, for example, Matthew 6, 16-17, rendered in some of the most popular Bibles, and note the insight gained from looking at multiple translations. I'll post that chart in the show notes. Of course, of all Bible translations to consult as, you're, as you render biblical verses, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, or the New Translation, as it is also called, should be Latter-day Saints' chop choice. It was done by commandment of the Lord under prophetic authority. As Joseph Smith's Translation scholar Robert J. Matthews once said, Reading the JST is like having Joseph Smith for a study companion. Modern Prophets When you reword scripture to express your private understanding, check it against how prophets have publicly interpreted those same passages for the church. Use scriptures.byu.edu, as was described in detail in chapter 3 to see how prophets have used and referenced verses in general conference settings. For example, look how President Spencer W. Kimball once gave an interpretation for the word here in DNC 2917 in conference saying, the Lord teaches that he cannot forgive people in their sins. He can only save them from their abandoned sins. The Lord clearly says, my blood shall not cleanse them if they hear me not. Here, in this instance, means to accept and abide his teachings, or see how Elder David A. Bednar interprets the windows of heaven in Malachi 3.10. Prophets have not interpreted every verse of scripture and won't definitely, definitively declare what each word ultimately means. This is an unrealistic and futile expectation that misses the point of both revelatory scripture and living prophets. One reason is because scripture has multiple correct interpretations depending on context. Although there can be multiple truthful views of a text, prophetic commentary acts as a ballast to our personal scriptural interpretation, balancing where our understanding may be tipping into troubled doctrinal waters. Thus, as President Dallin H. Oaks taught, seekers should make careful study of the scriptures and of the prophetic teachings concerning them, and then prayerfully seek personal revelation to know their meaning for themselves. Historical Context Although scripture can and should be applied in multiple and modern contexts, it is crucial to study scripture in its original historical context and for its original intent. Context changes intended meaning. Using art to illustrate, nearly everyone is familiar with Michelangelo's 15-foot masterpiece statue of David. Originally, the sculpture was commissioned to be placed among many other biblical heroes up high in the nook of the Cathedral of Florence, sending a message of David classed among the prophets. 
When the sculpture was finished, however, a committee decided to place the masterpiece statue in the Plaza della Signoria, at the entrance of the town hall in Florence, facing Rome. The statue now took on a new meaning, that of a political statement, sending an immediate message of liberty and independence by smaller Florence toward the Goliath of Rome. In 1873, the statue was moved to its current location where museum goers admire the beauty of the sculpture's symmetry, artistry, and proportions. But the political message it sent for 400 years is lost on most. Context changes meaning. Similarly, if we don't understand the original setting, customs, cultures, issues, and idioms in scripture, we will miss out on a correct context and intended inspiration. To better understand correct Historical context and intent is both ancient and modern scripture. Scholarly commentary can be extremely helpful. Scholars who have dedicated their professional lives to understanding scripture texts provide insights that generalists simply cannot. When we study using scholarly commentary, we can see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and think with their minds. Although not authoritatively binding or always correct, scholarly commentaries can fill in knowledge gaps to help you understand scriptural text. Certainly, Paul understood and interpreted scripture better because of his schooling at the feet of Gamaliel, a master scholar on the law of the fathers. President Russell M. Ballard acknowledged the benefit he gains by seeking learning from those with appropriate academic training, experience, and expertise. To be clear, I do not intend to suggest that the only way to interpret scripture is how it was meant originally or contextually, as supported by scholars. Scripture is dispensationally pliable and can intentionally shapeshift to fit modern applications. We can and should, however, read in context and learn from scholars to help us better externally substantiate our personal interpretation of Scripture. Conclusion Seeking in Scripture As the Lord instructed some early saints about that which is written in Scripture, you and I are to pray always that the Lord may unfold the same to our understanding. DNC 32.4. Written revelations are not the revelations themselves, but rather recorded, captured, records captured in limiting human language. Although scriptures carry power, paradoxically, to extract the, max, extract the maximum from their revelatory potency, we need to acknowledge their inherent limitations. The purpose of scripture is not to be a perfect record of God's dialect or dictation, but to act as a personal Urim and Thummim, a launchpad for revelation to connect us to the same divine source that revealed the truths in the first place. To better understand scripture, we must be willing to interpret it anew into our understanding. To properly interpret scripture, we can read the text mindfully, listen reverently by the Spirit, restate the words personally, and then substantiate our interpretations externally. You will know when you are interpreting scripture when you find yourself being illuminated and filled with the spirit of inspiration as you study, and coming unto Christ to serve God. I conclude with a question from Brigham Young that summarizes many of the concepts in this chapter for scriptural seekers. Do you read the scriptures, my brother and sisters, as though you were writing them a thousand, two thousand, or five thousand years ago? Do you read them as though you stood in the place of the men who wrote them? If you do not feel thus, it is your privilege to do so that you may be familiar with the spirit and meaning of the written word of God as you are with your daily walk and conversation. End of chapter. So as we are taking a look at President Nelson's discourses, 
I highly recommend that we go back through them and listen to them again. Listen to his cadence, his vocabulary, his emphasis, his expression. Not only the written word, but there is value in studying both simultaneously and putting ourselves in touch with the same source that revealed these truths to President Nelson. As language can be limiting, I think we'll find many deep connections, patterns, and themes. I've put together a deep dive worksheet that has many uh, questions to, to start out with as we begin diving into each conference talk. It's not meant to be an exhaustive study. If you have any other questions or things that you would uh, add to the list, I would be happy to, to add those in. Um, and it's not required that we do all of the bullet points as we are interpreting the scripture. But um, anyway, I felt that this chapter was so helpful as we begin to deep dive into uh, President Nelson's talks that I wanted to share it with you all and uh, do a little read along. Have a great day and happy studying.